Thank you. You may be seated. I'm sure that you've heard this common expression. It's an idiom. That's the the common uh, phrase to describe it in grammar that refers to something that is claimed but is not supported by the facts. I worked with a guy years ago when I was in sales in the Asheville area, and he was just a, he's a great salesman, but he was just a country boy. And a lot of times when he'd be talking about things, giving a sales presentation, or perhaps maybe even as a sales manager talking about certain things, rather than saying that doesn't hold water, he had a, he had a phrase that he liked to use frequently, and he would say, that dog don't hunt. I'm sure you've heard that one, and I don't know if that's southern, but it certainly is country, and I always liked it. He'd say, that dog won't hunt, and I'd just grin. I thought, that's pretty good communication. I like that that guy. But uh, we, we just read about a cistern that the Lord says it doesn't, it can hold no water. Now, when it comes to cisterns, I, I was reminded about, you've heard me tell my testimony about sitting on my nephew sitting on the porch of an old farmhouse in Emmett, Idaho, where uh, I was a senior in high school. I, actually, I had just graduated, and this same farmhouse, we had an incident that happened several months earlier, where we had a few cats that would run around and catch mice and cause problems and all kinds of stuff. One of them would get up on the roof and get out by my window, and it would meow really loud all night long. Meow, meow. I hated that cat, worse than other cats. Just joking, sort of. But anyhow, one of the cats, we had a a kind of a dark brownish cat, had a little bit of kind of reddish on its fur, and it had kittens. And a little black fluffy kitten was running around. We had this screened-in porch, and right outside of those steps where my incident, my encounter with the Holy Spirit, if you've ever heard me tell my testimony of getting right with God, those same steps just to the left of it, there was a big shrubbery, big big bush, kind of like what is right outside the church building, these big round bushes, and typically you come in and you, you trim them all up and make them look real rounded and so forth. Well, this was this was a huge shrub right there in the corner, and it hadn't been been trimmed for a long time. Well, inside that bush, we could hear this little kitten meowing like it was in distress. And so my dad, he's trying to, he's digging in through there trying to find this cat. We couldn't find the cat. It's like it's got to be somewhere. It must be deep inside that bush. Well, so he got out some pruners and he started trimming the bush back. It's like, eventually, if I trim far enough, I'm going to find the cat. He didn't find the cat. And so lo and behold, what had happened is that shrub had grown so big and unknown to us, there was a water cistern right at the base of that. You couldn't see it. It had some boards that had been placed over it and weeds and leaves from that shrub had just kind of covered it up. And one of those boards had just kind of shifted a little bit, uh, just enough for that little kitten to fall down in that cistern. So he trimmed the shrub back far enough to where we could get and pull the boards out and 
Uh, bottom line, he rescued the cat. But whenever I think of water cisterns, I think of that old farmhouse that years before we lived there, they would catch all of the rainwater from the gutters and it would go down into that cistern. And that's where they got their water supply back when it was a functional farm. And yet I think about this concept here of a cistern not holding water, and I think about the condition of the nation of Israel in Jeremiah's day. Folks, it was really similar to the spiritual condition of the United States of America today. Uh, The state of the Christian church in America, very similar as you read the book of Jeremiah. You know, one thing about the book of Jeremiah is things had gotten so bad with Israel and with Judah that basically God told Jeremiah, I want you to go preach and nobody's going to listen to you. And you know why no one was listening to Jeremiah? Because everybody was simply hearing what they wanted to hear. They were forming conclusions that didn't hold water. I'll say more about that here in just a moment. God had done so much for them, and yet they had forsaken him by their actions. But just like America today, they continued to honor God with their lips. Now, approximately a 100 years later, the prophet Isaiah had warned them that this would happen, and he started seeing it during the time of his prophecy. And in Isaiah 29, verse number 13, Isaiah's prophecy says, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by what? By the precept of men. Not by the word of God, but by the precept of men. You go to the average Christian church today, and you know what you hear a lot of? You hear a lot of the teachings of the precepts of men. You'll hear a lot of cliches, and you'll hear a lot of folksy, uh, very heart-touching stories. And oftentimes, you'll hear a lot of tradition. And sadly, you'll be exposed to a lot more emotional manipulation than you are exposed to Holy Ghost conviction that comes from the precepts of the Word of God. How can something like this, how could it have happened to America? How could it have happened to Israel and Judah? Well, I'll tell you why and how it happened. Simply because of self-deception. Timothy, or excuse me, Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.13, he warned that in the last days, this would be the characteristic. He said, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is prophecy of the end days. And folks, I believe that we are in the midst of that prophecy. We look around us and we see the characteristic of people that are deceived willingly. And you see a lot of deceivers that are glad that they're deceiving. Most of them know what they're doing, but I think many of them, they don't know what they're doing because they're deceived themselves. Folks, a good pastor is to your heart what the Better Business Bureau is to a business. He's going to expose the fraud. He's going to warn you. Jeremiah 17 verse number 9 says, The heart 
is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Preachers all across the country today are telling people, follow your heart, follow your dreams. Listen, the Word of God says those dreams, if you're being led by your heart, those dreams are going to become nightmares when you cross over into eternity. I've heard all kinds of self-deception in my time, working with young people, working with older people. I've heard it from all different walks of life and social uh, standings and people with education and people with no education. It doesn't matter. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. While the devil certainly plays a major role in human deception and sin, most of our problems come from within. James chapter number 1, verse number 14 says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Listen, people say, well, the devil made me do it. The devil may have had nothing to do with it. It may have just been you because we have a deceitful heart inside of us. And let me tell you something, our human nature possesses. Listen, you, I, I see billboards when I, we travel down to Florida. It's something about the, the state of Georgia and Alabama and Florida. They must have a lot of injuries there because every billboard you see on the interstate is for an injury attorney. You see them every now in North Carolina, but boy, you see them almost every other one in those states. And I'm thinking, what is it with these people? They must have a lot of injuries, but you know what it is? It's they need an attorney that will help them win their case. Listen, you have that kind of an attorney living inside of you in your human nature that is a master at the art of self-justification. Don't kid yourself. We all have it. I'm sure that many of you have been to a carnival and you've seen those distorted mirrors that can make you look skinny. I need one of those in my house. I think maybe I've got the one that makes me look fat. You're saying, no, you have a real accurate mirror. Tall, short. There's mirrors that can make you look squiggly and all of the above. And you know what we need if we're going to be delivered from the self-deception of our human heart and from the, the nature and the lust within us that wants to do wrong and wants to justify ourselves, then we need an accurate mirror. And folks, I've got it in this King James Version of the Bible right here. This is the pure and the perfect Word of God. And when we look in it, it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our heart. And it is so vital to deliver ourselves from self-deception that we know the Word of God, but also that we know the author of this book. And that's a spiritual thing. It's not just academic. We've all heard, and I'm going to say, in fact, let me just go ahead and jump into point number one. I want to talk to you about the resting of Scriptures. Not R-E-S-T, but W-R-E-S-T, resting of scriptures. Most self-justification among believers, among Christians, is taking and using the Bible to justify the behavior that we want to do. People will look at the Word of God and, you know, they will hear what they want to hear. 
That's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. Peter addressed it in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 15. He said, account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom, wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Now, Peter and Paul, they kind of approach this gospel and salvation just a little bit differently. Peter had to kind of adjust his thinking because he he was preaching one thing early on in the book of Acts, and then Paul comes along a little bit later, and God reveals all of the mysteries of the church. Not that Peter didn't have some of the mysteries of the church, but God raised up the apostle Paul to spell it out in details. And there was some things that Paul taught that the apostle Peter kind of struggled with. And he'd kind of scratch his head, and sometimes he would go along with it, but his conduct didn't necessarily match what he was saying. Galatians chapter number 2 bears witness to that. And so at times, Peter was kind of perplexed by what Paul was preaching, and then there were some other believers that were jumping on board. And to make a long story short, Paul was preaching the gospel of the grace of God, not works, Paul was preaching eternal security. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Jewish believers had to make some serious adjustment to their view of God and salvation based on the gospel of the grace of God. And there were some that were going around, and they were slandering the the apostle Paul, saying, oh, If we listen to you, then that means we can just get saved and then live however we want. And of course, Paul addressed that and he said, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And so that's not what Paul was saying, but Peter is addressing that. And he says in verse 16, As also in all his epistles, speaking of them of things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest. They pull it out of context. They twist what he's saying, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Listen, I've never seen more evil resting of scripture than I have in today's culture. Maybe you heard of this, maybe you saw it. This is a billboard I'd like to show you. This is a billboard that was paid for and put out by the governor of the state of California, Gavin Newsom. And he put this billboard out and it says quite clearly, need an abortion? California is ready to help. Now, I don't know if you can see the fine print underneath it, but What it says is it says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so the governor of California is using the scripture, resting it, basically saying, if you're anti-abortion, then you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. You know, the problem, the biggest problem there is he leaves out the first commandment which is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength. You can't quote the second commandment without first quoting the first commandment. Because if you love God, 
you're going to love the things that God loves. And let me tell you something, God's Word tells us quite clearly and plainly that that unborn baby is a soul. Numerous. I'm not going to turn this into an apologetic type sermon here today, but that is a crystal clear thing. The resting of scriptures is a satanic tactic, but is only effective because, um, because Satan tells people what they want to hear. Matthew 4, verse number 6. Think about this. And he saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. You know what Satan is doing? He's quoting the Bible when he's tempting the Lord Jesus Christ. He's tempting Jesus to do something that is not the will of God for him to do, certainly not at this time, and he's using the Scripture to do it. It's a satanic tactic that plays on human nature, in essence, telling people what the devil knows that they want to hear. You know, the average big-time preacher in America today, and I hesitate to use the word preacher They're definitely not men of God, but they'll get up in front of people, usually thousands and thousands of people. You'll find them on all of the networks, and you'll listen to their message, and some of their message is like, well, you know what, that sounds pretty good and sounds pretty right. But as I've said many, many times, the devil's in the details. It's not what they're saying that's the big problem, it's what they're leaving out, the context Satan used the Bible to tempt Jesus Christ by taking it out of context. And you know, the only thing that saved Jesus, and I know Jesus quoted the Bible, but let me tell you something. The Bible says, thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Just quoting the Bible is not going to be adequate measure against self-deception, against satanic attack. You also have to align your heart and your life with the God of the Bible. You've got to have a relationship with its author, and Jesus had a relationship. You know, somebody can come along and they can tell you something that, hey, they'll use the Bible, and it sounds like, oh, wonder if that's true or not. You know, the average Christian will go, well, who am I to say? I'll tell you who you are to say. You're a Christian. Study the Bible and find out. It's like, you know what? What that preacher said or what that teacher said, what my coworker said, they may have quoted the Bible, but they are absolutely wrong because they've taken it out of context and they've left out the rest of the story. Besides love thy neighbor, which obviously is is uh, a horrible thing to put on a billboard promoting abortion. Besides that, there are many other scriptures that people rest, take out of context, in order to justify evil thinking and behavior. Here's a big one. Well, uh, Jesus drank wine. I'm sure that if I asked you to raise your hand, you've heard that one. You've maybe used that one before. Uh, when I was in high school... 
I, I used that one before. And you know where I got it from? You're going to say the Bible. No, I got it from my buddies who said they got it from the Bible. Because they were all saying that, and it sounded good. Why? Because at the time, that's what I wanted to hear. Well, let me tell you something. I'll eat this book right here if you find a place where it literally says that Jesus drank wine. Because it's not in there. You say, well, he turned water to wine. Yeah, well, as we said just a couple of Wednesday nights ago, there's two kinds of wine in the Bible. New wine is just grape juice. And so until you figure that out for sure, you better be careful that you don't slander or blaspheme the character of Jesus Christ. Uh, what about what Paul told Timothy? 1 Timothy 5.23, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake. Had a drunk downtown Asheville. I'm street preaching. Probably one of the first times as a preacher boy that I went out street preaching. Brother Runyon said, Brother Andy, you're called to preach. We got to do street preaching. I don't want to. Yeah, you have to. Okay, so we go downtown Pack Square. I got my Bible there and I started yelling. The Bible says... John 3.16, and you know, I didn't, I didn't get but just maybe two verses quoted about salvation and about Jesus till I had a drunk in my face. And he's staggering and he gets, he interrupts me. I mean, I'm not going to keep yelling and preaching with somebody's this close to me. And he goes, oh, oh wine for the stomach's sake. Uh, he knew the Bible pretty well, didn't he? Somebody had told him that. And you know what? He, he totally rested it out of context. Notice that Paul didn't say to drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake. He said, use it. I believe knowing the whole counsel of God on this subject, I can tell you emphatically, I don't know which one of these is true, but I know that one of them is. Either Paul's talking about like a teaspoon or a tablespoon, or he's just talking about unfermented non-alcohol wine. Either one, medically, you can make a case that it's actually good for your stomach. So one of the two is true, but one thing I know for sure is he's not promoting social drinking and that alcohol is okay. How about this one? Psalm 33.3 says, Sing unto him a new song, play skillfully with a loud noise. Boy, the contem- there's several different places in the Psalms where it talks about singing a new song. Now, all the contemporary Christian music proponent, proponents say, ha, see there? It's in the Bible. We don't have to sing those old hymns back from the 1800s and the early 1900s. We're supposed to come up with new music and a new song. Why do they promote that and why do so many people believe that? I'll tell you why. Because it's what they wanted to hear to begin with. So what does it mean? I'll tell you what it means. A new song is God telling us that after we get saved, we're supposed to be singing a new song, not like that old music that we sang and listened to back before we got born again. I know what kind of music the world listens to. I used to live out there in the world. You're looking at a prodigal son right here that spent a little bit of time in the hog pen. Let me tell you something. The hog pen 
hog pen tunes don't belong in the house of God. I know what, I know what hog pen tunes sound like. I used to listen to them while I was wallowing around in that filth. But when I got right with the Lord, I liked different music. I liked what we heard today here in this, here in this church service. I liked what I was listening to here this morning. I like those hymns that actually mean something. And listen, the sweet melody, you know, forget about this Christian rap. Are you kidding me? What a bunch of nonsense. Christian heavy metal, that is the devil's music. I had enough sense to know that when I was so far away from the Lord, you wouldn't even know I was saved. I recognize it. And you know what? People today, they know in their heart of hearts that what I'm saying is true. But boy, they're going to resist it and they're going to fight it. Why? Because of this truth right here. But you know what? You can make that argument. And I've read their arguments. I've heard their arguments. But it's not going to hold water. When we stand before God one day, we're going to find, people are going to find out big, uh, big difference. How about this? People say, well, God is love. You know, they'll use that to justify all kinds of perversion. That we all know the one. I gotta cover this one. Judge not lest ye be judged. And by the way, I'm, I'm quoting what people say. That's not how it appears in the Bible. Alright? Judge not that ye be not judged. That's what the Word of God says. But of course, the cliches always paraphrase it. And people, you know, if you repeat something long enough and loud enough and confident enough, people will be absolutely sure that it must be in the Bible. Well, it's like the Bible says, the good Lord's just not going to put anything more on you than what you can handle. I guarantee you, some of you think that's in the Bible. I'm sorry, it's not. I'm not saying that there's not truth to that statement. I'm just saying it's not you're not going to find it in the Bible. And that's what the problem is, is Christians have become so Bible illiterate, and instead of looking in the mirror of the Word of God and figuring out how am I supposed to think and how am I supposed to behave, they listen to their deceptive heart, the world around them, and they hear what they want to hear. I remember this one. I've been, I, I, and I've, I got sucked into this one. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord. You know, the Bible teaches that. And somebody quoted that, you know, saying that, well, you know, you have to have, you have to have balance in your life. It can't be all about church and God and the Bible and prayer. As Brother Max preached just a few weeks ago, you know, you can't be too heavenly minded or you'll be no earthly good. That's a a bunch of nonsense right there. We can't be too heavenly minded. The more heavenly minded we are, the more earthly good that we are. And listen, when's the last time that you even come across somebody that was so zealous for God that you'd say, oh, they need to balance out their life? That's, I, when I was a preacher boy, you could make that case against me. I can't remember the last time that I've seen a young man so on fire for God that people say, whoa, 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 son, you need to kind of, you know, you need to have some fun too. It just doesn't even exist anymore. Now we're saying, hey, back away from the fun and get busy serving God. Amen. But 
this verse has been used for all kinds of nonsense. You know what the verse means? has nothing to do with your priorities and your schedule. It has to do with your, it has to do with if, if you go to a store, back then they had to weigh out their money. And store owners, I'm just, you know, they would have a, they would have a balance that was rigged so that they could sell you three pounds worth of stuff and the scale would look like that you're paying, or they would sell you three pounds and they charge you five pounds for it. They'd rip you off. And the Lord, you know, and you wouldn't even know it. That's what that false balance is. It's an abomination to the Lord. Deceit, being a crook, taking things from people through deceit. That's what the verse means, but of course, it's used to justify a lot of nonsense. I heard someone justify drinking and dancing by saying this. Well, I don't want to be a hypocrite. They, they like, they didn't see anything wrong with that, so it must be okay. Well, why is it that drinking and dancing are perfectly fine, but, oh, you don't want to be guilty of the sin of hypocrisy, right? Not going to hold water, folks. Some of the most passionate proponents, get a load of this. Now, don't, uh, don't, don't get uncomfortable about what I'm getting ready to talk about, okay? There's no agenda here, I'm just giving a historic account. Some of the most passionate proponents of slavery in America were Bible-believing Christians who had been taught that the African was under a curse and was practically subhuman. Now, some of you might have actually been taught that when you were younger. It has, it's, it's carried over even, I remember hearing it from some people when I was a young preacher boy living in the mountains here of North Carolina. Folks, that's not true. Not true at all. And how much heartache, how much suffering, how much violence and injustice has been produced by some maybe even well-meaning Christians resting the Scriptures, or maybe somebody taught them that and they just didn't even know any better. They just assumed it to be true. Once again, I'm not promoting that. I'm not justifying. I'm just saying that this has happened. That's how serious and important it is that we don't just simply hear what we want to hear, but rather we take the Scripture within its context. I've counseled people in the past who have tried to justify them leaving their spouse by saying, I got the wrong rib. You know, Adam, the rib. I've counseled people in the past that say, well, we're unequally yoked, and so I'm going to leave them. And listen, and I tell them, it's like, that's not talking about after you get married. That's applying before you got married. You're already yoked. At that point, it's like, hey, and I've heard people say, well, I didn't marry my soulmate. And then, you know, someone who they think is their soulmate comes along, so they leave the one that they've been married to and had children with, and they just move on. I'm not trying to make people who have been through... Divorce is a horrible thing, and I have compassion. I'm not trying to make you feel bad for anything that you've done in the past. I'm just simply saying that there are people who will use the Bible to justify something that the Word of God says no such thing. 
In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ, he was, I mean, he was, he was as rough on divorce as anyone in the Word of God. Here's one, I just, I'm going to throw this one in for free. This one has, in church history, has always intrigued me. Matthew 19 and verse number 12 says, For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb, there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. You've probably heard of a church father by the name of Origen. He was into asceticism, and he was like a monk that, you know, didn't believe that you should have any earthly comforts. You just basically, you know, hide in a cave and study the Bible. And those of you, if you know what a eunuch is, then you know kind of what went along with that. Well, Origen's reading here what Jesus said in Matthew 19. When Jesus said, he that is able to receive it, let him receive it, Origen decided, well, I can receive it. And so he made himself a eunuch. But verse number 11, let's look at verse number 11 with me. Jesus said unto them, all men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. I feel sorry for the guy because Jesus was saying He was talking about receiving the saying. He wasn't talking about making yourself a eunuch. I wonder if later on in his Bible study, if he came across that and went, you you can just see that moment. It's like, what have I done? I'm not trying to be crude here, folks. I'm just simply saying that we have to be careful about resting the Scriptures and making sure that we know the author of the Word of God, and we are familiar with the entire Bible, rightly dividing the Word of truth. The Bible should be your justification for all that you think and all that you do. Just make sure that your cistern holds water, because not everything holds water. I have two points here this morning, so here's our second point. Secondly, I want to talk to you about changing terminology, standards, or messengers. In Luke chapter 10, verse number 29, but he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus just told them, this was a lawyer, by the way, and he said, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. And so he's like, okay, um, who's my neighbor? You know what he's doing? He's looking for a loophole. He's thinking about somebody. Maybe he had somebody that was living directly next door to him, and he's like, I'm not going to love him. So I need a further definition here. I need a loophole here so that I can redefine who my neighbor is so that I can hear what I want to hear. Satan's temptation in the garden was not necessarily a resting of the Word of God, but rather a redefining of the meaning. Yea, hath God said... Oh, God doth know in the day that you eat thereof, you'll become as gods. You'll be like him. Was Satan telling the truth? Yeah, pretty much. But he was redefining what it meant. And it was exactly, by the way, it's what Eve wanted to hear to begin with. It's human nature. Even before the fall, it was human nature. How about this one? God wants me to be happy. 
Maybe you've thought that. Maybe you've said that. Maybe you've heard that. I'm not going to say that God doesn't enjoy our happiness or that God God doesn't want us to be unhappy. But to emphasize on that phrase right there that, hey, God wants me to happy, you can justify anything that makes you happy at that moment, and you can you can try to believe in your own mind that God wants me to do this because it makes me happy. Listen, the Lord never said, be ye happy, for I am happy. He said, be ye holy, for I am holy. How about this one? Well, that's in the Old Testament. How many of you have ever heard that one before? You know, you try to prove to them that something's evil. Oh, that's in the Old Testament. So, all right, let's be, let's be consistent about this. So you're saying that since you don't like what I'm telling you from the Old Testament, does that mean that we throw everything out from the Old Testament? Uh, do you know there is nothing in the New Testament against bestiality? You're going to throw that one out too? You know, people are saying, I'm going to pick and choose what Old Testament verse that I'm going to apply, and I'm going to pick and choose which ones I don't want to apply, because after all, I can justify myself. I can figure out how to make the Bible say what I want it to say. Now, listen, I'm not saying that everything in the Old Testament is applicable. Listen, I don't think, I don't know, this is probably got some wool in it, and this probably has cotton in it. I have no idea. I bought this from some lady named Lydia. If you know your Bible, you you get that one. I have no idea if I have different fabrics and stuff. I don't even, you know, the Lord in the Old Testament did not address polyester, by the way. But to God's people, God said, I don't want you to mix, you know, linen with wool and so forth. I I don't believe that that is applicable to us, but that doesn't mean that we throw the whole Old Testament out. The Apostle Paul says the law is good if a man use it lawfully. There's a lot of things there that even though we are not under that law, we can learn from it and find out what God thinks of something. And it's not that difficult to figure out, does God approve or disapprove of this particular conduct or way of thinking? It's not that difficult at all if your heart is aligned with the author of this book and you're truly seeking truth rather than just trying to find what you want to hear. First Kings 22, verse number 7, And Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord besides that we might inquire of him? And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man, Micaiah the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. I hate that guy. For he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. This is Ahab. And, you know, Ahab was a wicked king. And let me tell you something, anybody that's halfway a man of God, you get around someone like Ahab or many of the leaders in America today, you're not going to have much good to say about them. 
You know, so what, what was Ahab doing? Ahab was saying, well, we got this guy, but I'm not going to listen to him because he's not going to tell me what I want to hear. Listen, brothers and sisters, why do you think that the churches around us that are not being faithful to the Word of God, why do you suppose that they're busting out of the seams trying to find places to put people? We're all filled up. We've got to build new auditoriums. We've got to have two services on Sunday to meet the need of the crowd. You know what the problem is? The problem is, is that our culture, there are too many people here today that are just like Ahab. I don't like what that guy's telling me. He's meddling with what I listen to and what I watch and what I wear and how I, how I parent. All these personal things that people that the Word of God addresses. And this guy's telling me, I don't like that. He's interfering. He's meddling. I'm going to go find somebody that prophesies to me smooth things, makes me feel good about myself, who makes me feel like I've got a good self-esteem. I saw something the other day. They were showing some singer. I don't even know. It's some new singer. I don't know who it is. But he's singing this song that you can't love your neighbor if you don't love yourself. Listen, you don't have to promote anybody to have self-love. We all have way too much of it naturally. You don't have to promote that. i got to move on here. The story here of Ahab and Micaiah demonstrates the foolishness of self-justification. Reminded me of this group of men. They're standing around at a company social function. And uh, one man says to the other, you know, because they're all, some of them are partaking in the, you know, the things that happen at company social functions. And one of them says, well, he says, I, I drink, but I don't get drunk. The other guy standing there says, well, he says, I drink and I get drunk, but I don't throw up. The other guy says, well, I drink and I get drunk and I throw up but I don't ever get any on me. And then another guy says, well, I get, I drink, I get drunk, and I throw up, and sometimes I get it on me, but I never pass out. It sounds ridiculous, does it not? But even though that is an extreme example, I wonder how many of you here this morning that you have some area in your life that you are changing terminology redefining or changing messengers so that basically you can do what you want to do. I think you get the picture. Any fool can justify themselves by finding somebody that's worse. Good men are often the guiltiest of self-justification. I wonder if David felt justified when he sent Joab out to war and he stayed home and he saw Bathsheba bathing Maybe David is like, okay, I killed Goliath. I've killed thousands of Philistines. I fled from Saul. I've spent my whole, half my life in a cave. I mean, just to follow the Lord. And every time I turn around, the men of Keilah, they wanted to turn me over to Saul. And I guarantee you that probably David's thinking that I have done all this for God and for the kingdom of Israel. I think I deserve a little break. I'm going to send Joab out. I bet the rest of David's life he wishes that he would have been out there on the battlefield sleeping in a tent 
uncomfortable and dirty and cold rather than staying home, being where he shouldn't have been. I imagine that Noah felt that he deserved just a little bit of break. You know, he preached righteousness for hundreds of years. He survived the flood. You know, he's, it was just him and his family, and they're alone, this whole big world. Oh, I just feel kind of lonely. There's just, you know, no one that really understands. I think I'll plant me a vineyard. Uh, I guarantee you that uh, Noah regretted that feeling that he deserved something. Folks, that's self-justification, and it'll get you in huge trouble. I'll close here this morning with this thought. We all know that the Pharisees had some issues, but I, I want you to know from the words of the Lord Jesus, the Pharisees, their issues were not their strong convictions. Uh, that's, often, uh, that's often another misuse of Scripture, people assuming that anyone with strong standards and convictions, oh, they're just a Pharisee. Their problem was not their, their standards or convictions. Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse number 2, he said, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, all therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. Jesus never said, ignore what the Pharisees are teaching. He said, just don't do it with the same motive. They're being hypocrites. They're trying to get you to do their bidding, but they're not living right themselves. The issue was hypocrisy, not convictions. Don't let anybody, when you have some dress standards and you have some entertainment standards and you have Bible convictions, you're letting the Word of God be your final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Don't ever let anybody tell you that you're a Pharisee just because you're not tofu like them that just kind of blends in with what everybody else around us is doing. Don't let them convince you because it's a lie. The Pharisees were more concerned about looking good than being good. But even more, they were masters at using the Bible for their own purposes, to do what they wanted, and yet still look good in the process. The reality of it is, is the liberal, the liberal Christian today is more of a Pharisee than anyone with strong convictions and standards, because they just care about looking good. You can believe a lot of things that are true, but so does the devil. You ever thought about that? Well, I justify this. What I'm believing here is true. Just remember the devil probably believes everything that you do. The Bible says in James chapter number 2, Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Are your beliefs doing you any better than the devil's beliefs are doing him? It's not just a matter of saying, I believe something. The issue is, do we trust God and are we on his side? You know, a lot of people, they fuss about the meaning of repentance. There's a lot of good definitions. There's some out there that aren't so good. But the best way I know to, to describe repentance is when you and I take God's side against ourself. That's just, that's repentance right there. God, I'm, I'm wicked and I'm evil. What you believe about me is the truth. Lord, I'm on your side. 
That's true repentance. And until we get on the Lord's side, that self-justifying blue-chip attorney that lives inside of us is going to continue to rest the Scripture, redefine terminology. You're just going to change churches or preachers till you find somebody that suits your fancy. You can justify anything that you want to. But the question is, Will your cistern, will it hold any water?